Rudyard Griffiths here, Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the news with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you, hopefully, with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. Sean, Stuart, great to be in conversation with you once again. Sean, Stuart, great to be in conversation with you both. Hey, guys. Great to catch up, guys. Well, let's dive right in here. A busy show. We want to take on three topics uh, this episode on the roundtable. We're going to go from the latest in U.S. politics to the meltdown at CTV News to, uh, if we got time, uh, a little bit of commentary, maybe a victory lap or sorts on what's happening in Ontario in terms of thinking about uh, the future of healthcare reform. But guys, let's start in the U.S. And Sean, I'm going to come to you first. We saw a pretty uh, important, I think, bellwether event in American politics. And I mean, let's spend a little time thinking about it, but I also want to think about the repercussions and reverberations back here in Canada. Liz Cheney, absolute blowout loss uh, in her primary uh, going up against Trump-backed candidates, almost two to one, uh, defeated. She will now exit uh, American politics for the time being. She was, as we know, the most prominent Republican on the January 6th committee and a uh, a longstanding opponent of Trump, uh, targeted by him explicitly. Uh, and here she is uh, leaving stage right with Trump and his allies seemingly emboldened, running on this incredible high that uh, the movement, their movement has received as a result of the FBI Justice Department uh, search of his Mar-a-Lago residence. Um, Sean, what's your take on this? I mean, are we now kind of witnessing the deluge, uh, après moi, le deluge, is that what's going on here? Like we are literally seeing the rails being laid down, not just for the midterms, but 2024. Yeah, let me say three things really quick, because as you say, we have a lot to, to get to this week. The first is Cheney first wins that seat in Wyoming in 2016, as Trump is destroying establishmentarian candidates through the Republican presidential primary. And in hindsight, the two were on a kind of collision course that ultimately resulted um, in this week's defeat of Cheney. Second, I think she deserves a lot of credit here. Um, Cheney, after being elected in 2016 to the House, quickly rose to become the, the third most senior Republican in the in the House Republican caucus and was well on her path to becoming speaker, uh, something that her father had previously aspired to do. And to kind of throw that all away, um, to, in effect, um, say that two plus two equals four, rather than do what a lot of her colleagues have done and, you know, effectively lie on behalf of the former president, I think is is worth uh, recognizing and, and elevating. And then just the last thing I'll say about uh, about this particular event and, and before we turn to what it may mean for Canada is that, you know, as chaotic and crazy as the Trump candidate Trump as a candidate was, and then ultimately as a president, you know, there were some guardrails around him. He had people remember in his first cabinet, the first group of people around him, some people uh, with a degree of wisdom and experience. Guys, if he does this again, I mean, this is going to be absolutely crazy town. Um, There won't be the John Kelly's or the, you know, um, 
um, General Mattis or even the Reince Priebuses of the world. This is going to be a kind of motley crew of characters. And, um, and you know, I think the signal to Ron DeSantis and others um, as a result of this week's uh, outcome is the crazy train is coming for you next. Yeah, in that regard, listeners, check out a terrific piece by Maggie Haberman in the New York Times today, uh, the 19th of August. Uh, Le moi, God, I'm using up all my French here, is one of the subheads in the story. You know, the state is me and just how Trump, some fantastic reporting on how Trump saw that his generals, his political allies, documents, literally everything that he touched as his own kind of personal possessions, uh, literally things that he owned it in this case took back to mar-a-lago um i really want to know what that dossier on emmanuel macron uh, had and why he felt he had to keep it come on there has to be a terrific story there but let's come to canada on this sir because i think when we see these kind of uh, political uh, eruptions in the united states and boy are we headed into one we've got a the judge of the uh who who uh, approved the the search of the Mar-a-Lago residence is arguably uh, reports are that he is going to allow the affidavit um, that supported that search to be released in part. Some of it will be redacted. So, you know, we're just going to see a high octane um, debate here that potentially will unfold over weeks and months. And Stuart, how does that affect, you know, Canadian politics? Because then sometimes, you know, Canadians do react to this and often it's like, wow, that's not us. And that's not what we want to be. And, you know, our politics is X and they are Y. We're from Venus. They're from Mars. You know, you know the story. So does this bleed over? And if it does, what are the possible effects? Yeah, I I was remembering a piece I wrote in Alberta just before Jason Kenney united the right there. I was interviewing people and I kind of realized that the average conservative um, Calgarian wakes up with Nahid Nenshi as mayor. Rachel Notley is premier and Justin Trudeau is prime minister. And I put that to Tom Flanagan, the political scientist. And he said, yeah, it's an absolute nightmare. <laughs> and so I was thinking that maybe there's a time when progressives in say Toronto wake up to Doug Ford as premier, Pierre Polyev as prime minister and Donald Trump again as president in the US. And you know the psychic toll of that um, will be immense. I, I think there's a really interesting dynamic here too, because as you said, Canadians, are not impressed with Donald Trump. Like even conservative Canadians disapprove of this guy. The last numbers I saw, his disapproval was in the 80s. And if we happen to get Pierre Polyev or some other conservative as prime minister, that dynamic, if Trump does become president again, I I don't know how you handle that politically because for Justin Trudeau, you know, as much as it was annoying to deal with the renegotiation of NAFTA and to deal with all these like grenades that Trump was throwing, I think he was comfortable being in opposition to Trump and that dynamic played out kind of nicely for him politically. But if you are Pierre Polyev, you're already having people call you the Canadian Trump. And I don't think that is true or I don't think that is helpful to him at all. That's going to be a real minefield for him. So I think, you know, as much as we'll probably deal with the same stuff, you know, protectionism and stuff like that, the political dynamic, I think, will be really tough to navigate. So, Sean, just to wrap up this segment on that point, I mean, isn't this isn't this going to be uh, a hill to climb for Pierre Polyev? Uh, all all indications showing he's he's going to win this this leadership contest, and he's done so. You know, you can either say to his credit or possibly setting up a challenge for him politically. 
on a much more kind of populist message than conservative leaders have campaigned in the past. And I, I guess we know how we know how deep anti-Americanism runs in Canada and anti-Trumpism, as Stuart just pointed out, is at a whole other level. So does this again put some real pressure on Polyev to put water in the wine to, you know, somehow the WEF stuff, the World Economic Forum, vaccines, some of these things that have been very effective for him in terms of mobilizing new members. A, you know, to what extent are they bigger liabilities as a result of U.S. politics going through these uh, convulsions? And, you know, can he walk them back or does he then just look like every other wishy-washy conservative leader we've had in Canada over the last period since Stephen Harper? Um, All of them have not done too well at the polls, have they, come election time? Uh, This is a great conversation. I agree very much with uh, Stuart in your analysis. And um, let me put an idea on the table. Um, I've made the case on previous episodes that one of uh, Pierre Polyev's greatest assets is his well-established trust and credibility with core conservative voters. They know he's one of them. He's, he talks to them in, in muscle memory. Um, and I think that will give him some flexibility in the coming weeks and months as leader. Let me give you another American idea People will remember the sister soldier moment in the 1992-93 presidential cycle where uh, to establish his centrist moderate credentials, Bill Clinton called out the excesses of his progressive supporters on issues of race and and violence and and rap music. And I I wonder if Pierre Polyev ought to be looking for his own sister soldier moment to signal to um, uh, moderate, you know, sort of politically detached voters in suburbs in around Toronto and elsewhere, um, that he is not the radical extreme populist that uh, that they hear about in the media. Um, and he may be able to do that precisely because core conservative voters ultimately know um, that, that he's one of them. My final comment, just to wrap this segment up is, yes, uh, you can certainly do that, Sean. I guess it just, this has to play into the advantage of the liberals. I just think it has to. I mean, we're inundated with American media. We follow American politics in some cases closer than we follow our own. And I just, I don't know. I just, I think um, Trump is the ro- return of Trump. The You know, it's the zombie movie with the hand reaching out from the grave after you thought uh, you'd slayed the vampire, the, the zombie of your choice. He's back. And I just don't think that's, it's just going to be a tougher road to hoe for the Canadian conservative movement, regardless of who's, of who's leader, but it probably especially if it's Pierre Polyev as a result. Okay, let's take a quick break. Back on the other side with the meltdown at CTV News. We like covering the media at the hub. Let's have some fun with this one, kick it around, but also uh, some serious uh, issues at stake. Back after this short break. Thank you for listening to The Hub's podcast. I wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that you're just one click away from receiving complimentary access to The Hub's daily email newsletter. We call it Per Diem, and it features some of our best analysis and insights, all built around the big issues and ideas shaping our world. Simply visit our website, www.thehub.ca, follow the links to subscribe 
And the next morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, you'll receive per diem in your inbox. You can unsubscribe at any time, no worries. But we think you're really gonna enjoy what you'll hear, see, and read via per diem, our daily subscription email. Thanks again for listening to this Hub Podcast. Now back to our program. Hello, Hub listeners. You are tuned in to the Friday Roundtable with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-chief, me, Rudyard Griffiths, your host. Great to be in conversation with you all on this uh, Friday, the 18th of August. Okay, guys, let's spend a little time on what's happening uh, at Bell Media, unless you've been living uh, under a rock somewhere or your cottage internet has crapped out on you for the last five days, um, you will know that Lisa Laflamme has taken to social media on her own to basically flame her uh, now looks to be former employer, Bell Media, uh, about her dismissal as the anchor-in-chief of CTV News' flagship uh, evening news program. Stuart, you're deep in the journalist trenches there. Um, have, are you surprised at just how this thing has exploded? Um, the outpouring of support for Lisa Laflamme, the anger at you know Bell Media and how this was handled. Um, I mean, I want to. I, wanna, I don't want to say it's not a, un, unimportant, but it is one person. They're a TV anchor. And it is now a kind of raging pile on on, you know, one of the countries, the country's largest uh, telecom providers. Yeah, I think maybe um, the the coverage is definitely that journalists like to navel gaze. I think that's probably our favorite thing to cover is ourselves. And, um, you know, tens of thousands of people get laid off in the oil sands and it'll get like a page seven uh, news report. But I Personally, I'm a hypocrite on that because I've been gossiping with all my friends about this and talking about this. And my wife is in journalism. We've been talking about this. And there are so many different elements to it that it's, you know, there's lots, there's a lot to talk about. And I think, you know, the thing that probably most surprised me is that I think the execs at Bell are probably really surprised at the response because I was genuinely shocked at the response. And, you know, I saw Lisa LaFlemme's video after about three hours of it being posted and there was 2 million views on it. And that's flabbergasting to me. And I, I think maybe we have this habit now of sort of applying an identity lens to just about everything that happens. Um, so if you look at this, it's, um, you know, a female anchor, retiring before her time. I think there is some truth to that, especially given the Globe and Mail's reporting about, you know, higher ups mentioning her appearance and her gray hair. Um, but this is just one of those things, right? Like we've had Lloyd Robertson and Peter Mansbridge into their 70s on the chair. And I think actually that's bad. The idea that you would give this job to someone who would just hold it for life these are big jobs and I, I think they need to be reevaluated all the time. So in a vacuum, the idea of replacing an anchor because you want to make a change, it shouldn't be that big of a deal because they should be doing it based on their own sense of where they want to go with the show. But I, I can't decide whether there was some genuine, um, you know, bad acting here, you know, based on sexism or whether maybe the media is sort of unfairly applying that to the story. And I'm sure it's somewhere in between here. You know, my take on this, Rudyard, I'd be interested in yours is, you know, I think probably twofold. First, it's pretty self-evident that Bell mishandled this decision. Um, and the person I feel 
worst floor is um, Laflemme's successor, uh, who's now going to take the host chair um, under this cloud of controversy and 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 heightened attention through no fault of his own. Um, it's simply a, a result of of the way that Bell has gone about handling it. The second thing I'd say to pick up on Stewart's point about the tendency to overanalyze um, media developments, it's worth noting we're having this conversation in parentheses the same week that reliable sources, CNN's media analysis show has been canceled, um, uh, is that the, the this is against a backdrop in which legacy media is collapsing. Um, you know, and, and if anything, hopefully this decision draws greater attention to the kind of fundamental market uh, failure here. We have, uh, you know, print uh, facing existential threat. Um, you know, the fact is uh, CBC's uh, program, The National, has something like, what, half a million views a night? Like our podcast is, you know, soon going to eclipse it. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, Maybe there's something going on here. Maybe there is sexism. Maybe there's ageism. I don't know. But I just think fundamentally this reflects um, the kind of unsustainability of legacy media that um, it sounds like a lot of people are discovering for the first time. What, what's your what's your take, Roger? <laughs> well, I got to declare that I, I actually worked for a while for uh, Bell Media. I was uh, an anchor on uh, BNN and then on on CTV News, actually, for a while, and I knew Wendy Freeman. A lot of respect for her, the, uh, the executive director of uh, CTV News. But here's what I'll tell you: that the kind of dirty little secret about television is that um, you know when you're on air, you live and die by that little red light. So when that little red light comes on on the camera, you exist. When it's not on you don't exist. And I think what a lot of people who aren't in TV understandably don't understand is that the power relationship is really asymmetric. So the executives control that little red light. And at any time, they can pull the off switch on you. I had it pulled on me multiple times at BNN, CTV. I was even doing a show on a network that collapsed called uh, Bloomberg TV Canada. So I'm used to the little red light going out, out. It may say something about my my on-air performance, but um, I don't, I, I guess that goes to my point of, I just think at the end of the day, this is just fundamentally mishandled and that these executives need to understand that when you're going up against somebody like Lisa Flam with hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers with 30 years of going into people's living rooms, like invited into their homes. Okay. So it's a special relationship. You, you this could have been handled so differently. You could have gone to her and said, look, you know, it's it's time for some generational change. We want to bring diversity. Omar, the new uh, the new uh, chair there, will be bringing more diversity to CTV News, which is predominantly kind of white. I'll be honest with you in terms of their on air presence. They've made some steps in that direction, but they need to do more. You could have framed it that way. You could have said to her, "Look, here's you know six documentaries we're going to do on the big international news stories over the next you know year and a half a nice long rich you know goodbye uh, and instead you've got a multi-billion dollar corporation taking a massive hit to its public goodwill this is an owned goal uh, by not just bell media but but bce and i'm sure the senior executives there in montreal 
are, uh, you know, huddling and uh, are going to make some other personnel changes at a very high level very soon, because this was unnecessary. And anybody that actually knows how to handle on-air talent knows that you got to do it with kid gloves. You got to maybe show more respect than you think is due in terms of a dying, you know, legacy media and the fact that, you know, um, these people are, what was the expression one producer called us? Meat puppets. Okay. <laughs> the idea that the producer puts their hand up, you know, where and moves it around and you as the on-air voice talk and walk as you're told. So there's, there's a culture in these institutions that goes both ways. And uh, I just think somebody at the corporate level at Bell, you know, misread this or just didn't behave in the norms and with the expectations that the various parties in this case, Lisa LaFlon with all of her service, all of her years, you know, could rightly have deserved. Yeah. And I, I've heard some people say, isn't it kind of crazy how media companies are so bad at handling these media situations, but you have to remember that everyone who's mad right now is friends with dozens of maybe hundreds of journalists. So the probability of it being leaked is extremely high. So the level of difficulty for these execs is actually a lot higher. And I think there's also a certain level of delusion among newsrooms, which is a very useful thing because believing your job is the most important thing in the world, I think is a very effective way to do a good job. And so a lot of these fights come down to the fact that, you know, journalists are very ignorant of the business side of things. And I, I know this from reading the post-media quarterly reports and seeing just gallons of red ink and then talking to my colleagues who would say, why aren't we going to Ukraine or why aren't we going to Africa and covering this? And there just was a cognitive dissonance there. So I, I think that a lot of it comes down to that, that, you know, these sometimes are just very basic cost-cutting measures. And if you're in journalism, you're not really well attuned to accepting that because you think your job is so important that it couldn't possibly be cut. If only the people who watched uh, Lisa LaFlam's Twitter video actually watched the evening broadcast, she might still have a job. Um, but I, I suppose that's for another day. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great bathwater drinking competition on on all our parts and and guys when you push me out of the hub i i'm expecting you know a long rich goodbye here okay uh dinner's uh, out uh you know maybe an art my own article series story well, that? isn't when, that the you, funny show thing me the, show me the door to the cold arctic winds of my career post hub no, you're gonna be like cool the anchor you're gonna be like the rolling stones retirement it, it never <laughs> ends Rudyard. you just stay on tour over and over and over again yeah. and like yeah, spring stings I'll, I'll be charging more and more and more five thousand dollar <laughs> tickets to tune into the, the rudyard griffiths podcast Let's i'm not sure that. if you guys noticed this in your regions I know we're all in kind of different areas but every time a local anchor leaves you get like six months of goodbyes and everyone comes on and tells them how great they are and that was kind of the jarring thing is that lisa flam is sitting alone in her cottage doing a twitter video it was kind of it was kind of crazy okay guys uh great discussion let's move on in our remaining time to our third issue we always like to give our audience a kind of dose of public policy. We don't think of it as broccoli or broccolini, as uh, I've now been told that I need to eat in order to be contemporary and hip uh, here in downtown Toronto. Um, so let's talk about healthcare reform in Ontario for a moment, because, you know, this traditionally has been the third rail in Canadian politics. Uh, various leaders and governments have 
blown themselves up, uh, stepping on healthcare reform, uh, most notably musing about possible private delivery of uh, services. So, Sean, what's going on in Ontario? Why is this happening? Let's talk about that first. And then what are the potential avenues that that this could actually take? Yeah, I think this is, you know, one of the most exciting developments that we've seen in, in a long time in Canadian public policy. We have the Ford government, um, a, a government that in its first four years in office was hyper cautious, you know, didn't advance healthcare reform, even though New Democrats in British Columbia were experimenting with private delivery. You had Jason Kenney's government in Alberta doing the same. The Quebec government is expanding the role of private delivery, and yet the Ford government was, um, for some of the reasons that you say, Rudyard, um, standing on the sidelines. Having won a renewed mandate, we, we've seen in the past several days, the government signal um, that as the system faces the ongoing pressure from the pandemic, and we look towards um, the pressure that aging demographics are invariably going to impose on uh, access to technology, access to surgery, testing, et cetera, um, the Ford government is, is, in effect, expending some political capital uh, to, uh, to expand private delivery. I think this is a huge deal, and I'll stop in a minute, but let me just emphasize this point, because I, I, I think it's worth uh, emphasizing for listeners, is that I think the public has been ahead of the political class on this issue for a long time. Everybody knows someone who's um, been languishing in pain because they're not able to get treatment. The pandemic, of course, only exacerbated this um, uh, this reality of our healthcare system. I know people, for instance, who now have um, uh, probably cancer that can't be reversed because it took so long um, to get diagnosed and, and get treatment. Uh, and so I, I think we're on the cusp of a pretty radical change in the way healthcare is financed and delivered in Canada. And if you think that the system was, um, was unsustainable, um, then I think you'll probably look at these developments kindly. And the question, of course, is now, you know, how to design uh, a, a healthcare system that doesn't leave people on the outside looking in, but is able to use kind of market mechanisms uh, to achieve faster, uh, more costly care. So big, big, big development in Ontario, in my view. Yeah. Well, again, you get all kinds of rational reasons to think this makes sense. You know, Ontario healthcare spending approaching 50% of um, the provincial budget uh, growing at, uh, well, rates now that are less than inflation, but still, you know, significant and big um, negotiations likely coming up with uh, the healthcare unions over salaries in the context of um, continuing inflation here in Canada. And then wait times, you know, we've done some work um, at the hub and another project on Tarot 360 on just the extent to which you've got tens of thousands uh, of procedures that need to be caught up on that have been missed, diagnostics. So Stuart, you can reason this through, but the question is, politically, can you make, can you close the argument? Because we've had this conversation before in Canada, and for whatever set of circumstances, voters have shown a consistent and committed inclination, maybe beyond an inclination, a desire to punish political parties and leaders that uh, attack the principle of universality. Yeah, I, I think that right now it's it's a very interesting moment because 
I think it's basically become politically untenable for the provincial government to do nothing. And so the idea of, you know, doing a press conference every week while we have these stories about uh, ERs closing and ambulances taking 12 hours to get to people's grannies, like you just can't be the premier of a province and have to answer those questions and have no answers. Um, we, we have a piece coming in a couple of weeks, uh, a healthcare feature on touching on this a little bit, but it kind of talks about, you know, there are lots of little solutions here and there, but the big solution is private delivery, delivery, which is sort of a pressure release valve on the public system. And then, you know, or you could raise taxes and put more money into the system. Both of those things are politically very difficult, maybe toxic, maybe impossible. And if you look at, you know, an NDP government in Alberta, they were not able to raise taxes, especially, you know, specifically a PST in Alberta. It was too politically difficult for them. They just didn't do it. NDP government in BC, experimenting with private delivery, and it doesn't seem to have hurt them too much uh, politically. So I think right now we're, we have a great test case for this, which is, um, you know, the very kind of basic cartoonish discussion we have about private healthcare in our elections. People are going to see what it really looks like, which is that this is still universal. You can still use your health card and go and get service. And it might actually make things better because we have this huge backlog that you're getting rid of. And I think that a lot of people are dealing with right now. So, you know, this may just come down to results and we are in the very beginning of the Ford government mandate. So it'll have four years to play out and we'll get to actually see what happens. Just uh, maybe I'll just wrap up guys by, by saying, um, you know, building on something I said earlier, which is, as, as you both note, this has been something of a, of a political kryptonite for uh, governments in Canada. I, I remember the 2011 election of which I was a part uh, as we got down to election day, there was accusations thrown about private healthcare, et cetera. And, um, and I just don't know if those um, political charges will stick anymore for some of the reasons that Stuart has described and just how personal it is. You know, as I said, everyone knows someone who's, um, who's suffering as a result of um, the overextension of our system. And uh, for that reason, I, I, I think that the Ford government is a bit of a canary in the coal mine because its tendency towards cautiousness. The fact that it is moving in this direction is a sign that, uh, as Stuart says, uh, the status quo is no longer politically sustainable. Um, and so I think we'll look back perhaps on this week as a kind of major linchpin in um, uh, fundamental changes to the way healthcare is financed and delivered in Canada. Yeah, I think I'll wait and see what the opinion polls say, because this is a government which uh, often blows a bit like a weather vane. And I think if you saw a sharp turn against uh, the proposed reforms in terms of public opinion, you might also see a similar U-turn on the government. Uh, look, I may be surprised, but um, I think they have something to demonstrate there in terms of uh, an ability and a willingness to follow through on on these types of more uh I wouldn't say, well, I guess there's risk attached to them, but less conventional kind of policy ideas. And the final point I'd make just to connect one dot for people, you know, we have a, an opioid epidemic uh, in Ontario and Canada. We are losing thousands of our fellow citizens to increasingly powerful opioids. And we're just naive if we don't draw a connection between the extent to which people are living in pain, they are on waiting lists, they're unable to access timely treatment. And the system is using opioids as a way of, of managing uh, 
uh, under capacity and under supply and over over subscription, over demand. Um, so this is a multifaceted, multivariable challenge. And I think we just keep going down, doing the same thing over and over again. You know, what did Einstein say? It's, it is the definition of insanity. So let's leave our discussion there, guys. We got through three topics this week. Really enjoyed the conversation with you. We'll do it all again next Friday, but urge our listeners to check out uh, the Hub website. We've got a bunch of great uh, stuff in the last week. Howard Englund's piece on, on uh, centerized conservatives, a must read, uh, beautifully written, and uh, some great, as always, uh, commentary by Sean and Stuart. So check it out right now at www.thehub.ca, and we'll speak to you again next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable podcast at The Hub. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, your executive director. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, the editor-at-large at The Hub, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Aidan Moscovich, intern at The Hub. If you can access a YouTube version of this audio on YouTube, simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get it on our website, www.thehub.ca. Look for the Friday Roundtable. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations for you, featuring some of the world's sharpest minds, brightest thinkers, the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite audio program. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. We'll do it all again next week. Bye-bye.